All right. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. This is the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. I am the dog. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark. He is the duck. And this is what this show is all about. What brought us together was a love for sports and a hatred for each other's team. And (laughs) starting off this season... We are off to a great start if you're a Husky fan. And boy, oh boy, what a rough way to get things going. So, Mark, how are you doing, my friend? I've been better, Warren. I've been better. Uh, You know, it is Tuesday night now. So what is that? That's 72 hours that I've had to kind of uh, process uh, one of the three worst season openers of my lifetime for the Oregon Ducks. And... uh, Still not great. Still not great. Still not feeling real great about how the season started. So uh, I I know that we're going to get to that, uh, but I feel like we can't start there, Warren. We've got to start. No. You know, as, as Michael Scott once said, oh, how the turntables. And uh, all Husky fans know what it feels like to have the shoe on the other foot because we were – licking our wounds and our heads were spinning after losing against Montana in the season opener last year. Um, So it's a sweet turnaround uh, and turn of events for Husky fans. But yeah, let's get in it. We'll start as always with the dog news. And uh, of course, the big headline is the Huskies open with a dominating win over the Kent State Golden Flashes, 45 to 20. And Golden Flashes may be the word for this Husky offense. There were fireworks all over the field. Warren, my my first question for you, you know, you watched this game closely. I did not. Uh, But my first question was, was there any point in time where you were missing John Donovan's play call? Man, you know, I was feeling this deep remorse that I did not appreciate John Donovan more. I mean, John Donovan is like a fine wine. He just gets better with age. No, (laughs) trust me. We had John Donovan in the rear view mirror. And if anything, we were backing up over him a few times before peeling off and burning rubber to get away. It was a breath of fresh air to say the least. And Mark, really, that was the story of this game was just the dramatic turnaround of this amazing offense from being the most dreadful and painful offense to watch in the history of the University of Washington to being one of the most exciting season openers that we've had in a couple decades. Yeah, well, so let's let's dig into that. Uh, especially, I want to start on the offensive side of the ball because when you made, uh, you know, kind of what were when you uh, talk about what you wanted to see, you wanted to see some easy offense, some guys running open, some schemes that were leading the easy completions. And when you gave a bold prediction about this game, you said that you thought you would see ten different receivers notch a reception. For the Huskies. So in terms of an offensive overview and kind of meeting your expectations, how did this offense uh, grade out by those standards? 
Well, Mark, I couldn't have picked it any better. We, I, I picked that we would have 10 different receivers catch a ball. That was my bold prediction. I think that caught you a little off guard um, when I said that, but they landed 10 different receivers, 29 receptions. Uh, starting quarterback, Michael Penix, was 26 of 39 for four touchdowns, zero interceptions, zero sacks, um, and really no mistakes by Michael Penix at all. 345 yards passing. To me, the most impressive uh, opening day performance by a Husky quarterback, perhaps in Husky history. Now that's that's a little bit of, has a little bit of an asterisk on it because you're talking about a guy that had a pretty successful career at Indiana, whereas that kind of a, you know, scenario wouldn't have happened 20, 30 years ago. But still, in my memory, I don't think, I can't remember a single quarterback that in his first game had the kind of performance that Michael Penix did. And to your point, the, the main thing that I wanted to see last week that I said I wanted to see was easy offense. And that's what we saw. In fact, Mark, there were really were no miracle catches on Sunday at all. There was no, you know, gravity defying plays. There were just well executed schemes and guys getting open and making plays in the open field. And that was exactly what I was hoping to see. And we actually left some out there. I mean, there were a couple of easy drops that, that got let go by uh, our tight ends. Uh, but overall, we had our three starting wide receivers all had uh, at least one touchdown and 70-plus yards receiving. Jalen McMillan uh, went for five receptions, 87 yards, two touchdowns. Roma Dunze uh, was right behind him with seven receptions for 84 yards and a touchdown. And then surprise starter Taj Davis lived up to the coach's expectations with the the first touchdown reception of the night. And he finished with three receptions uh, for 72 yards and um, and a touchdown. And so dear, to me, it was exactly what we wanted to see coming into this game against uh, an offense in, in Kent State that had the potential to put up a lot of points but a defense that was known for giving up uh, big plays. We did what we were supposed to do. Okay, Warren, let's dig into the Penix thing a little bit because I think this is uh, kind of an underreported story nationwide right now. We we dug into a list uh, on our own time uh, outside of the pod looking at uh, the Athletic published a list of the 100 most impactful transfers there were many quarterbacks on that list. There were many Pac-12 quarterbacks on that list. Caleb Williams of USC was on that list. Cam Ward of Washington State was very high on that list. Uh, Bo Nix of my Oregon Ducks was, was on that list. Michael Penix was not on that list. Uh, and that surprised both of us. Uh, and now here you, you have this debut where he throws for over 300 yards uh, like you said, you know, one of the great kind of debuts of a new Washington quarterback. What do you think his his ceiling is as far as as this season and and what kind of uh, performance he can put out over 12 games as the Washington quarterback? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, how he got excluded from the top 100 transfer. I mean, if you want to exclude him from the top 10 or the top 25, 
do so at uh, your own discretion. But to not have him in the top 100 was a total uh, oversight by the athletic. I can only imagine that they're kicking themselves for that now. But, you know, Kalen DeBoer said it best after the game. He talked about how there were at least four occasions in the first half where Michael Penix uh, made a uh, an audible or made an adjustment at the line of scrimmage that uh, gave them the the coverage and the scheme that they needed to get into in order to get a first down and to, to even score a touchdown. And he said those were those were things that a freshman or sophomore quarterback would not know how to do. Yeah, and I yeah. think that is the reason why he is the starting quarterback is he's got that experience and he can get those things done at the line of scrimmage. And I think really the sky is the limit for, um, you know, for what he could be in this, this offense with Kalen DeBoer. We saw what he did with DeBoer at Indiana Um you know, and, and a lot of people have been trying to throw out names to compare him to different quarterbacks, Husky quarterbacks. Is he is he more like Jake Locker? Is he more like Keith Price? Is he more like Marcus Tuiasasopo? But honestly, I don't see him really as any of those guys. This is not a Husky quarterback, but to me, the kind of player that I think Michael Penix Jr. is and can be and this is not going to drop any jaws, but I think it's a solid comparison, is Teddy Bridgewater at Louisville. Hmm. Teddy Bridgewater was a great college quarterback, and he's been a very solid NFL quarterback. If you end your career with a Teddy Bridgewater career, you know that's nothing to be ashamed about. But what Bridgewater brought to the game at Louisville is that what I think Michael Penix brings to the game at the university of Washington. He knows how to run the offense. He has, he's very accurate. He's mobile enough to keep uh, in the pocket and to extend plays a little bit longer. And, you know, he's, he's a pretty athletic guy without being a dual threat quarterback, which Teddy brought Teddy Bridgewater was not, neither was Michael Penix, but both, I think, were are had well. Penix has the ability, I think, to be that solid, uh, smart, accurate quarterback that Teddy Bridgewater was. Now, the I think maybe one of the reasons why Penix has gone under the radar a little bit is injury concerns, some health concerns. Right. If you look over the last his last three years as a starter, he hasn't. Uh, made it through through an entire season i think he's made six starts at most over the last three years are there do you have concerns or do you kind of look at that as something where oh he's maybe he's due to play all 12 games in the season like he's had some bad luck and uh and this this could be his year because when he's been in the lineup for indiana i mean he was a he was a game changer they went five and one in his starts in 2019 they went five and one when he started in, in 2020 they were only two and three last year but but there was kind of some uh wonkiness to that they played Iowa and Cincinnati early in the season and he had probably the two worst games of his career against those you know mm-hmm. top 10 caliber teams at the time uh and lost to Penn State as well so that was that was just kind of a brutal schedule and then he got hurt last year but he has produced over the last three seasons a lot of wins 
for an Indiana football program that was overmatched talent-wise. Now he is, I think, probably surrounded by the most talented roster mm-hmm. that he's been around. So are you kind of holding your breath on the health side of it, or, or are you just kind of chalking up the last few years to bad luck? He's in a new environment now, and, and you're hoping for the best. You know, I think uh, any Husky fan that is even slightly locked into who Michael Penix is and what he has done and, and what he's faced over the last few years, I think every one of us begins the sentence by saying, if Penix stays healthy, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So to say that we're not concerned about his health would be uh, definitely, you know, uh, not being truthful at all everybody's concerned about himself because he hasn't made it through a season in one piece. But that being said, he's healthy now. And uh, you know, if the offensive line can protect him in any way close to what they did this past uh, Saturday, he's going to be just fine. Uh, He didn't have any pressures in this game. He didn't get sacked. He didn't, you know, really deal with any, Uh, hardships behind the line of scrimmage and this is an offensive line that we documented uh, many times last year as having severely underperformed um, based on their talent level we've got Jackson Kirkland coming back uh, next week and uh, there's no reason to think that even as we get into the Pac-12 slate that this offensive line can't do a, a a very effective job of protecting Michael Penix Jr. He's not a scrambler. He's not a, a running quarterback like uh, unfortunately some people have uh, jumped to that conclusion. Um, he wants to get back there. He wants to make his reads and make his throws and get rid of the ball. So I think the potential for him to stay healthy is strong uh, as long as that offensive line can hold up and do what it's supposed to do. I, I would also like to say, no, this is weird because I'm a Duck fan here and I'm, I'm making arguments uh, in favor of, of Washington and trying to kind of bolster things about the Washington football team right now. But I think there are some that might look at Penix's numbers against Kent State. Maybe there's some Duck fans that look at his numbers there and say, well, yeah, but he's doing that against Kent State. Like, is he going to be doing this against the best teams on Washington's yeah. schedule? But look what he did and- against Ohio State. Well, and that, that was exactly my point, Warren, is yeah. if you go back to 2020, he threw for 342 yards and three touchdowns against Michigan, threw for 320 the next week against Michigan State, and then 491 yards and five touchdowns against Ohio State team that right. played in the national title game. So he has already proven, again, with, with a very limited roster around him, he's already proven that that he can have those kinds of performances yeah. you know, against against the best teams on his schedule. So I think uh, if he does stay healthy, I think he completely changes the trajectory of, of, or of the ceiling of this Washington uh, football team. I think uh, there's a lot of reason to be enthusiastic coming out of that first week. Yeah, and I, you know, one, one other thing I would add about that is, you know, as I mentioned, he's a smart, savvy quarterback. Um, he's not dependent on one receiver. You know, uh, like I mentioned, he, he hit 10 different receivers. And one thing that was really fun and uh, unfamiliar for Husky fans was seeing the running backs getting involved in the passing game. Will Nixon, the transfer running back from Nebraska, had three receptions for 22 yards. 
Cam Davis, third string running back, had two receptions for 22 yards. Wayne Talapapa had a reception that just went right through his hands, uh, but he was involved in, in the passing game as well. The tight ends had some receptions and also had a couple drops. But, you know, those those shorter receptions are what help keep a quarterback from getting into trouble. And I think that's the thing that has been missing the last few years. It's either been run up the gut and get zero yards and then be in, in third and long and try to chuck it down the field and something bad happens more often than not. With Michael Penix, he's working the progression and he's taking what's available to him and he's got a, a good offensive play caller that's putting him in a position to succeed. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good things that we can take away from it. Obviously, we've got to play some good defenses this year. We'll see what happens when that, when that uh, you know, comes along. How will he handle that pressure? But to the point that you already made, he did it against Michigan. He did it against Michigan State. He did it against Ohio State. There's no reason not to think that he can't do it here as well. Let me when, I'll ask you one more question, uh, and then I, I can only handle so much husky optimism right now with the state yeah. of my own my own soul. But uh, and trust me, I'm ready to talk about some duck football too. So you know, well, we haven't we haven't touched it all on the husky defensive side of things. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts there as far as uh, what you saw? Obviously, the big question was, can the offense have some life and some energy? That question was answered enthusiastically. Uh, what did you see on the defensive side? Anything uh, good or bad that you want to comment on? Yeah, so I'll tell you the good and then kind of the bad or maybe to be more gentle, the, the not so good. The the good was we got three interceptions. We opened the game. The very first uh, offensive play of the game for Kent State was intercepted by uh, Asa Turner. Asa intercepted a second pass in the third quarter. And then uh, Mikel Esteen came in for one play. Uh, one of our backup safeties and got an interception on his only play of the game. Um, so we, we got some turnovers, which is what we wanted to see. And uh, these edge rushers that we've been hearing about all fall camp, uh, ZTF, Braylon Trice, Jeremiah Martin, Savelle Smalls, they were constantly in the backfield on Saturday night against the Kent State Golden Flashes. That was the good. What was the not so good? Well, they, they were beat deep a few times. One time, uh, Michelle Powell, our uh, starting quarterback, got beat by uh, their their leading receiver. And uh, and then even Jordan Perryman got uh, beat a couple times as well. And in spite of being in the backfield constantly, they only got one sack and two tackles for a loss. And I think you have to give the Kent State uh, offense and particularly the Kent State quarterback, uh, Connor Schley, a lot of credit. He looked really elusive back there and made some great throws as well. But I think that's something that those guys are watching that game film. They're seeing how they maybe missed an, an angle. They didn't fully wrap him up the way that they should have. And they're, you know, they're really chomping at the bit to get back out there and, uh, you know, fulfill on the promise that they showed out there well all told warren it is um 
it's it's a reason to be optimistic. And and for Husky fans who felt like last season was over before it started, uh, you at least have kind of bought yourself a week, probably at least two weeks with with Portland State coming up, uh, where you know you can you might as well dream big. And uh, and it'll be fun to kind of uh, see how how this uh, these signs of progress you know, measure up against Michigan State in a couple of weeks. But for now, uh, you know, it's it's got to be uh, just a, a good time to be a Husky fan, especially compared to what it's like to be a Duck fan right now. Well, yeah, Mark, you mentioned dreaming big, and certainly a lot of Duck fans were dreaming big going into the uh, opening game against the University of Georgia, wondering could they repeat the magic that they had last year against Ohio State in the horseshoe, but things didn't work out quite the way that they had dreamed with Dan Lanning, uh, Dillingham, and um, uh, Tosh Lapoy at the defensive coordinator. Mark, give us a breakdown of what happened in this blowout loss to the University of Georgia that, quite honestly, has um, created a lot of stir on a national level about whether or not. Georgia is as good as they looked on Saturday or whether or not Oregon was just incredibly overhyped coming into the season. Well, gosh, there's a lot of different directions I could go with this. Um, I think to start off with, I would say this is now a, a, a puzzling and disturbing trend for Oregon that has had now four losses in their last five games, all of them major marquee games. Uh, a regular season game at Utah, Pac-12 championship game versus Utah, Holiday Bowl versus, uh, or Alamo Bowl versus Oklahoma, and then, um, you know, the game against Georgia over the weekend. And frankly, Oregon was embarrassed in all of them uh, and did not come out able to make it a competitive game in any of those settings. And I kind of chalked the 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 ones to end last season up to uh, Mario Cristobal always kind of struggled away from Autzen stadium with, with one win against Ohio state as kind of the lone exception. His record was, I think it was 500 away from uh, Autzen stadium and he was virtually unbeatable at home. And so I kind of chalked it up to, there is something about the Mario Cristobal era where they have had trouble uh, traveling and, and competing in games. And I, I could list off several more for you than the ones I just listed off of, of Oregon just showing up and, and laying a major egg on the road. And I felt like under Dan Lanning, all of that would be fixed. And the troubling thing about this game, Warren, is it seems like it's gotten worse. It seems like, mm. you know, the, the warning signs that were there for, uh, for the Utah games and for the Oklahoma game, uh, evolved into an even worse like <laughs> into an even worse virus it's like the virus has gotten stronger and so I think for all Oregon fans there is there is a bit of of, of a sense of confusion uh after an offseason where I think a lot of us were kind of buying into just the enthusiastic culture that Dan Lanning seemed mm -hmm. to be uh bringing bringing into the University of Oregon and so I don't know what that means uh, for the rest of the season. I mentioned it's one of the three kind of worst defeats to start a season. There are two others that Oregon fans would point to. 
2004, Oregon started the year at home and they lost to Indiana. Hmm. Michael Penix did not play in that game. <laughs> and that was a, uh, a harbinger of a terrible season. It was the only losing season of Mike Bellotti's tenure as an Oregon coach. Hmm. The only silver lining to that season was that Oregon beat Washington for the first of what would be 12 straight years. Uh, but other than that, it, that was a that was a sorry season from start to finish, the only losing season in Bilotti's tenure, and it started with that Indiana game. Is this that? Is this a, a loss to start the season of saying, oh, my goodness, what are we in for? Right. On the other side, you have 2009 against Boise State, and I actually think this might be a better comparison. This was Chip Kelly's first game as an Oregon head coach. Chip Kelly, kind of an offensive mastermind as an mm -hmm. offensive coordinator, taking over the reins as a head coach against a really, really good Boise team. And Boise led by uh, Justin Wilcox, who was the defensive coordinator at the time. Chris Peterson was their coach at the time. Absolutely locked up Oregon. Oregon didn't pick up a first down until seven minutes to go in the third quarter. That's how badly they struggled on offense that game. To make matters worse, that was the game where LeGarrette Blunt knocked out a Boise player at the end of the game uh, in a post-game scrum and, and got suspended for most of the season. So that that goes down in history as like one of the all-time worst nights to be an Oregon Duck fan. And yet we know that the, the rest of the Chip Kelly era unfolded in, in kind of dreamlike fashion. And I think mm -hmm. within three games of that Boise State game, we were all in on whatever Chip was doing. I mean, it, it didn't take long to flip the script for that particular team. So my hope is that's what we're talking about with this team. Obviously, the fear in the back of Oregon's minds is that is that this is kind of like that, that loss to Indiana where it's a loss that, that just portends some really bad things to come. So, Mark, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, Bilotti, great great coach great uh, history um chip kelly probably the the most successful coach in oregon football history For sure. um, and you know you use the word mastermind and I, I think that that's a good a good word for what chip kelly brought to the pac-12 in that era you know that speed offense that was actually uh, a speed spread that kind of created running lanes. Um, would you use the word mastermind to describe Dan Lanning? No, no, I, I wouldn't make the comparison that direct. I don't think uh, Dan Lanning has um, quite the proven track record yet that, that Chip had, whereas Chip clearly had kind of an offense that was his. Lanning was running a defense for Kirby Smart and so how much of that credit goes to Dan Lanning how much it goes to Kirby Smart um you know that's all remains to be seen I would well, say hold hold on a second hold on a second now I mean let's just you know it's not like that's an an ambiguous answer I think you could look at the stat line and you could say okay uh Georgia scored on scored a touchdown on his first seven drives against Dan Lanning Dan Lanning knew that offense. He had the whole offseason to prepare for that Georgia offense. He knew Stetson Bennett and his uh, strengths and weaknesses. And Kirby Smart, uh, I mean, you know, he outcoached Dan Lanning. 100%. You know, 100%. I, so, 
all I'm saying is, is um, the fact that Dan Lanning was the defensive coordinator on um, maybe the best defensive team of the modern era. Uh, I'm not willing to just totally write that off yet, just based on, you know, um, and, and, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not saying that Kirby smart shouldn't deserve the lion's share, but, but I kind of look at it this way, Warren, is that like Kirby Smart was a defensive coordinator uh, under Nick Saban. Well, Nick Saban was the one getting all of the credit. Kirby Smart then took that and kind of did his own thing. Nick Saban was a defensive coordinator under Bill Belichick uh, when Bill Belichick was kind of the one that was getting the credit. Bill Belichick was a defensive coordinator under Bill Parcells when Bill Parcells was getting all the credit. So for Dan Lanning to kind of be included in that lineage, he has to produce something of his own right that that puts him in that category and he has not done that yet i think the sure. the difference we're, we're only, yeah we're only one game in but yeah. let's talk about that one game so yeah. you know georgia had their way with this oregon defense a defense that is loaded with talent and you know yet somehow they were missing tackles. They looked undisciplined. Um, you know, they, they seemed to be lost out there. So um, what, what, what was it, you know, what, what was it just poor player execution? Were they not prepared? Was the schemes, you know, did they get out schemed? What was it? I'm, I'm sure when the players look at the film, each of them find, things that they could have done better. The coaching staff was pointing out things that they could have done better. There were certainly missed tackles. I'm guessing there were other missed assignments. Uh, but it does it does seem to me like the, um, the blame should fall on the coaching staff for not having this team more prepared. And I don't necessarily know beyond that, like why that is, why they struggled so badly. Um, like you said, this is a team that they should have had a pretty good read on. Uh, the one thing that, um, that Lanning said in his post-conference press conference that I thought was interesting is he said, uh, you know, when you're putting together a game plan, you're always kind of going back and forth between volume and execution. How much complexity do we put into the game plan or how much are we wanting to simplify it in order to maximize the execution of the players? Totally and get it. Yeah, and he and what he said essentially is like this is a game where in hindsight we needed more volume, and he says we needed to be able to provide our guys with more answers, and so mm -hmm. it felt to me like uh, what he was saying is is we we took the approach that simple is better, and we were trying to kind of simplify the game yeah. for our he, guys. He wanted them free. just to be able to play fast and free. Yeah, and sometimes but that they got out schemed. And when that doesn't work uh, is what happens on Saturday. Yeah. It, it looks really bad. And, and I guess, so, so my question now going forward is, so if, if that's kind of how the coaching staff is going to respond, what does this team look like if they, if they scheme up a little better uh, against yeah. future opponents, do they look like a more functional defense? You know, if they played Georgia again in a bowl game, which I don't think is going to happen this year, but if they played them again in a bowl game this year, would they look better? Would they look different? You know, would they have a different way of, of, of attacking an offense? So, well, uh, they, they, they're not going to look worse. We know that they're not going to look worse. They that, cannot look worse. Yeah. I mean, they, they were 
they were scored on seven drives in a row to open the game. So, you know, they're going to get better going into the rest of the season. They will be most likely the more talented team on the field. By the way, I thought it was uh, an interesting comment that Kirby Smart made after the game about how he said he basically, um, you know, kind of, you know, made a backhanded uh, insult on Oregon by saying it wasn't Dan Lanning's fault. We just have better players than they do, which to me, I thought was really more of an insult than it was, you know, some sort of an excuse for landing it. it to me it smacked of you know hey i'm taking this personally and um i i needed to get that last comment in but regardless um oregon's going to get better they're they're going to learn from this they're going to you know play weaker teams and be able to kind of work out whatever mistakes that they made in in game one but um you know, looking ahead, does this give you any pause for concern about how the rest of the season is going to play out? Well, it's hard not to have any concern, right? I mean, there's there's reason to be concerned about uh, how the pass defense looks. There's reason to be concerned about, you know, the quarterback situation. There's um, there's reason to be concerned about the inexperience of the coaching staff. Like all of those are are lingering right now. And um, I would say that there's nothing Oregon can do against Eastern Washington this week to eliminate those concerns, right? Like the Eastern Washington is a test that can only be failed for Oregon. If they come out and they play really well, uh, and Eastern Washington is a good FCF team with a really good quarterback. Uh, so, but if Oregon comes out and plays really well, they're supposed to do that. Yeah. If Oregon comes out and struggles, if they give up 35 points to Eastern Washington, which is not out of the realm of possibility, that just adds to some of those red flags. If Bo Nix throws two interceptions in the first half against Eastern Washington, that just that just adds to those red flags. So, so the yeah, only let's, way let's let's look at that then for just a second. Um, you know, and and just backing up before we look ahead to, to next week, your bold prediction last week was that the the Ducks were going to be within a score. They were gonna they were gonna have a lead at some point during the game, which they never did, and yeah. they were gonna be within a score at some point in the fourth quarter. None of those came true. So you're over right. one on your bold predictions. But now <laughs> looking ahead at Eastern Washington, what do you want to see? And and you know, I think obviously we want you know if you're a Duck fan, you want to see uh, the defense clamp down on this uh eastern washington offense which is a dynamic high scoring offense um but you know what is kind of your point of uh lack of tolerance with with the scoring you know let, let's just say like when the starters are in the game if if they score more than 20 points or more than 30 points at what point do you say okay We've got a problem here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, if if uh, if we exclude garbage time, because I think Eastern Washington could put up some points in garbage time. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I I think Oregon should should um, you know should enter the fourth quarter 
with a comfortable enough lead that they're pulling their starters. And, um, and, and so that would, to me, that would be like three or four touchdowns ahead, you know, that, um, and I don't know whether that's, um, does that mean they could give up 20 points and still kind of pass the theoretical test? I, I don't know. I think the, the, the biggest thing that I want to see from the defense is a defense that gets off the field on third down, because that was the issue Yeah. in this, that, that, that has been the issue in all four of these losses mm-hmm. over the last five games is when it has come down to whether it's third and long, third and short, it doesn't matter. They have not been able to get off the field yeah. in third down. And if you look at, say, for instance, Oregon's win at Ohio State last year, and you, and you think, well, what was the outlier? They actually stopped Ohio State on fourth down yeah. three different times in that game. Like, that, right. that was the biggest difference is that that defense was able to get off the field time and time again. And they have not been able to do that for whatever reason over these last uh, – several games so i'm glad you brought that up mark because i think you're absolutely right the story of the game in that ohio state upset was the fact that they stopped ohio state on fourth down and they converted a couple of key fourth downs yes in that game anthony brown converted a, a few key fourth downs over the course of the season that really changed the potential outcome of the entire season especially the first you know 10 games of the season things kind of fell apart at the end as we already know but but you know so for me turning the tide and just kind of wrapping this up looking at the offense so um, Anthony Brown is out we know what Anthony Brown's limitations were Uh, you know they didn't go downfield with Anthony Brown a lot uh, but he was a good game manager and he made clutch plays like those fourth down plays against Ohio State, like the fourth down run against Fresno State to seal the game. What do you think, you know, based on what you saw from Bo Nix, what are you thinking about where Bo Nix stacks up against the maybe the watermark uh, or the water line, excuse me, of Anthony Brown? Are you feeling more confident about the quarterback position in 2022 than you did in 2021 after week one, or are you feeling like, boy, uh, I long for the Anthony Brown days? <laughs> well, I would say that I, I was a bigger defender of Anthony Brown than most last year because I liked the fact that he didn't turn the ball over. He had four yeah. interceptions in the first 10 games of the season and, uh, and he didn't throw his second interception until I think week seven. You know, Bo Nix threw two interceptions in the first half, one of which was was a really bad throw. Um, and and so right off the bat, there is a sense of like he, he's not doing all of the things that uh, Anthony Brown did. And Anthony Brown didn't do a lot. And so <laughs> so I think there is some some concern there. I do think Bo Nix will, will probably throw the ball downfield more and probably be more proficient at that. He is a competent um, scrambler. He can make some plays with his legs, maybe not quite to the extent that, I mean, Anthony Brown could rip off a 40-yard touchdown run. Yeah. He did that a couple times. I'm not sure Bo's got that in him, but Bo definitely can scramble 10 or 15 yards for first down. He even did that against Georgia. I think I, I want to give Bo time here to make the argument. I don't want right. to judge him just by 
how he did basically in a road game against the defending national champion. Right. Um, you know, in his first game with with the new offensive personnel around him. Like, uh, I, again, I don't think we're going to see much in Eastern that's really going to dictate it. But I want to let's let's get through the month of September and kind of see how we're feeling. Yeah, about Bo Nix because by that time he'll have had to play another quality opponent in BYU. He'll have had to go on the road to Pullman, and I think by that point we'll kind of have a sense. I don't think his ceiling is going to be a whole lot higher than Anthony Brown's, if 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 at all. Uh, but I think that you know could he be as good as Jeremiah Masoli was when Jeremiah Masoli took the Ducks to the Rose Bowl? Certainly. Like I don't I don't think that's out of the question right now. Um, if you look at, you know, his statistical production, it's it's right in line with what somebody like Masoli did. So I think he's good enough to do the job, um, but the other pieces all kind of have to carry their weight as well. Well, I think that's fair. And I, I mean, I think, you know, that's what a lot of Husky fans were, were saying after game one with you know, Dylan Morris was, you know, hey, let's let's give him an opportunity to kind of get into things and see how we're doing in you know by the end of September. Um, of course, we know how that went, but you know, let's just say that uh, Oregon gets out of September and they're two and two, and you know, Bo Nix maybe he's got a couple of big games, but at, at some point, a couple of interceptions cost them another game. They're two and two going into the full Pac-12 slate. Is that enough to kind of, you know, keep him in that position? Do you just say, hey, we want to hold on and try to I don't work? like I don't like the pessimism of this hypothetical, Warren. Let's say they're three and one and he doesn't throw any more interceptions. Like well, uh, I mean if, if he's three and one, then we know that they're not going to make a change. But but if he does, I mean if they do lose to BYU or Washington State on the road, which are certainly, you know, it's not out of the question that that could happen. Sure. Um, I, I, I would say this. I'm more concerned coming out of this Georgia game by how the defense looked than by how the offense looked. Okay. And the offense, yeah. I know they only scored three points, but I, I texted you actually at halftime. And I said, misleading stat of the day, Oregon has 14 first downs. Georgia has 14 first downs. That was, I, that was at halftime and it was 28 to three. And, and I just, I point that out because Oregon did actually move the ball with with some consistency you know on each yeah. of their drives they didn't have any three and outs in the first half they were they were moving the ball downfield and then and then they didn't stall because necessarily um of something that georgia did as much as because of of self-inflicted errors you know a dropped pass here a penalty there um a really bad interception um that just shouldn't have been thrown like so i think that those are much more correctable then whereas the defense gave me very little reason to be hopeful like the de- it right. wasn't like the defense was you know really keeping them in check and then would give up a couple big plays like the defense play to play looked totally overmatched and overwhelmed yeah. and i think has the biggest um hurdle to overcome so i'm i'm just i'm expecting the offense to just look mm-hmm. better over the next few weeks, whereas I don't really know what we're going to get from the defense. I'm, I'm anxious to find out. So Oregon's playing Eastern Washington um, this Saturday. Not a lot of intrigue there. Similarly for the Washington Huskies, they are hosting uh, Portland State at home. Uh, Portland State is a, you know, a respectable team. They, they held their own 
in a tough game against San Jose State. They were winning up until the final minute, ended up losing 21-17. to 17. And, um, you know, like Kent State, they've got a quarterback that can throw and run. Uh, Dante Charcare, dual-threat quarterback, ran for 83 yards, passed for 270 yards, and a couple of touchdowns. Um, so I think for for most Husky fans, this this should be a very easy win. Uh, but what do we want to see? I think we want to see that this um, defensive um, edge play, you know, cleans up the missed tackles behind the line of scrimmage. They were getting penetration against Kent State. They just couldn't close the deal on a mobile quarterback. This is a great week to try to iron those out. So for me, my bold prediction for this upcoming game is that the the Huskies are going to get five sacks in this game. Um, they're going to get a lot of pressure on Dante Charcher, and uh, they'll they'll do enough to uh, keep him from from running loose and, and free against the dogs. But just looking ahead real quickly, um, obviously the big game is two weeks from from well two weeks from past Saturday. Uh, against Michigan State. Michigan State beat Western Michigan 35-13 to 13 on Saturday. Uh, they looked good. They, they, they played, you know, uh, a convincing game, but lost two key players on defense, linebacker Darius Snow and safety Xavier Henderson. Um, so that's going to be a big loss for a team that I think going into the season was really predicating their success on the effectiveness of their defense with Mel Tucker. Um, so something to keep a, a, a look at. But speaking of that, let's do a quick review um, of some of the best games. Mark, let's just, just for the sake of time, what was what was the game that stood out to you as the best game of the weekend last weekend? Uh, I, I think the, the most fun that I had watching football over the weekend was the last basically two and a half minutes of LSU and Florida State, uh, which yeah. featured LSU muffing a punt for the second time in the game uh, and seemingly losing the game then, giving Florida State the ball inside the 10-yard line and Florida State scores, the game's over. Florida State fumbles the ball back to LSU. LSU has to drive, I think, 97 or 98 yards they score with in the they have one play with one second left from the one yard line and they manage to score they're lining up for uh the extra point to send the game into overtime and florida state blocks the extra point after previously blocking a field goal and just i mean that was a bonkers last last 3 minutes and so i would i would give the award to that one yeah, I, I would say the exact same thing. That was a lot of fun watching that game. I didn't have any stake in the game at all. Uh, but to see, you know, Mike Norvell out coach Brian Kelly and then the special teams got, you know, just guffaws by LSU. Uh, and, you know, I mean, one of the, the interesting storylines that came out of that game is uh the star wide receiver mark how do you pronounce his last name is it uh boute or buche buche i think okay so yeah buche, don't preseason all-american wide receiver didn't get his first 
reception until just about 10 minutes remaining in the the fourth quarter uh, only finished with two receptions for the game but within 24 hours of uh the the game ending he had some sort of uh scuffle with brian kelly removed all of his lsu social media and announced that he was entering into the transfer portal not exactly the way that brian kelly wanted to start this season and uh you know what do you make out of that uh well i think uh if i played for brian kelly i don't think i would last as long as as Keishon buche so um <laughs> it, it it's it's puzzling it's bizarre you know the more that i've looked into it i guess he's he's not eligible to transfer at this date like there okay. is a, there is a period of time now that has to go by before he can um you know i think it looks like uh beginning uh according to new rules adopted august 31st athletes participating in fall sports have two windows a total of 60 days in which they can enter the portal so the ncaa has just recently in the last couple of weeks mm. kind of passed some sort of of rules to um to kind of rein in the wild wild west of the transfer portal which i think we both think is a good thing that they're yeah. They're taking steps and so i wonder uh, if Boucher knew that rule when he announced that he was i, I don't i don't think so because it, yeah it doesn't look like he would be eligible to transfer until early december basically so um so yeah they've limited the transfer portal to basically december and january and then may right after spring spring practice and those are mm -hmm. the only two times you can do it which i think is a really is a really good step i do too uh, yeah to kind of limit limited to those two uh points in the season so I think it's, it's, you know, it's early season frustration. I'm sure, you know, when he was recruited to LSU, uh, he thought he would be playing for national titles and last year was a disastrous season. And, and this year they start out with a, with a loss on national stage to a program that had been kind of an embarrassment the last few years. So, and on top of that, you're coached by a guy in Brian Kelly, who does not seem like he would be the least bit fun to play for at all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that this this kind of thing would uh, would would boil over. I'm sure cooler heads will prevail. It wouldn't surprise me if he finds himself, um, you know, back on the sidelines here uh, soon. But uh, but some interesting interesting drama to start the season off for sure. Well, you know, it, I um, I got a kick out of this. I don't know if you saw this earlier today, but Brian Kelly did a press conference and. He opened it up by chastising a few of the beat reporters for being late to the press conference. And um, one of the uh, beat reporters, Leah Van, who uh, writes for the advocate in Baton Rouge, fired, out, fired back, maybe if you win, I'll be on time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you talked about the players not necessarily enjoying playing for Brian Kelly. I get the gist from just that little snippet that perhaps the beat writers are not fans of Brian Kelly either. Do you think that his tenure is going to be shorter than expected at LSU? You know, I, I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, Brian Kelly is a wildly successful coach. He won multiple national titles at the uh, at the lower level. He took Cincinnati to an undefeated season. He took Notre Dame to multiple playoff berths and, and had them playing in the national championship game once. So 
Uh, he is one big everywhere he's gone, and that's why LSU paid a truckload of money to hire him. And I think there's good reason to assume that with the caliber of player he's going to have at LSU, the fact that LSU is a school where the last three coaches they've employed have won national titles. Mm. Uh, one would assume that eventually Brian Kelly is going to get this thing turned around and LSU is going to become a real factor again in, in the SEC. And it's, and it's probably going to be sooner rather than later. Uh, having said that, there are some times where you have a guy that just seems to be a total um, at totally at odds with the culture. The la one that I think of is, remember when Rich Rod went from West Virginia to Michigan Mm -hmm. Rich Rodriguez had was really successful at West Virginia. He comes to Michigan and it was just from the very beginning. It was like, this guy doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Nobody in Michigan likes this guy. Like, and, and the team underperformed and within three years, you know, he was, he was out of a job there. Uh, I think Brian Kelly is a better coach with a better track record than Rich Rodriguez. Uh, oh, but that about it does seem like there is a little bit of, of bumping against the culture where he just doesn't. Whereas a guy like Kirby Smart seems to totally get everything about Georgia football culture and seems to be the perfect fit at that school. Uh, it does seem like Brian Kelly's a bit of a fish out of water and it will be interesting, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, antics that, that brings about as, as that kind of rubs against people the wrong way. Well, it was a great opening weekend of college football. So many unbelievable games, so many great match matchups. Pitt over West Virginia, Florida over Utah, Ohio State over Notre Dame, uh, the App State uh, game. I mean, just so many great games. Week two, I think we're kind of coming to see a lot of times as being one of the lower uh you know, le lesser exciting weekends of the college football year as a lot of teams find those cupcakes that they want to, you know, fine tune their game against. But looking ahead this weekend, we've got Alabama versus uh, Steve Sarkeesian in Texas, Quinn Ewers um, and his beautiful mullet against uh, Nick Saban and, and Bryce Young. Uh, Washington State going on the road against number 18, Wisconsin. Uh, USC versus Stanford and uh, the only matchup of top 10 top 25 teams uh, this upcoming weekend number 10 Baylor versus number 25 BYU at BYU Mark which game are you kind of circling on your calendars must see TV and and what are your thoughts Okay, I'm I'm gonna go in a different direction. I, I'll I'll be I'll be paying attention to all of those games. The, all four of those games are interesting, but I think the game I'm most interested, Warren, is the Oregon State Beavers going to Fresno State. They looked the Beavers looked really good in their opener yeah. against Boise State, and part of that may be that maybe the magic has left Boise once and for all. Like it may just be that 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 uh, Boise is not what they once were. But right. the Beavers looked really good on both sides of the ball uh, against Boise. And now to follow that up with a trip to Fresno, Jake Hayner, I think a fringe Heisman candidate. I, th I think Fresno will be better than Boise. They're certainly capable of, of beating the Beavers on a good night. Uh, this is a really interesting test for the Beavers. And I think if the Beavers uh, come out of that victorious, if they notch wins over Boise State and Fresno State back to back, I think 
we have to start taking them seriously, you know, as a, as a contender against the other teams in the Pac-12 North, certainly with the way yeah. that Oregon played. But I would say, you know, list them right alongside Washington as kind of those teams that are, that are going to make things really interesting in, in the Pac-12 North. Absolutely. And Fresno State looked great in their opening uh, week game as well. Jake Hayner put up big numbers as we've come to see over the last couple of years. I think that's going to be a great game. It's a great call. And um, Jonathan Smith's going to have his hands full going up against Jeff Tedford and these Fresno State Bulldogs. Do you have a prediction? Are you calling uh, the, the Beavers to win this game? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll predict the Beavers, uh, the Beavers win a thriller uh, down in Fresno. Okay, uh, I'm going to go the opposite way. I think I think uh, Fresno State's got a lot of talent, particularly on the offensive side. Uh, Oregon State, I think, will look good. But, you know, seeing what Fresno State did last year against UCLA, seeing how they almost beat, uh, beat Oregon, um, I think this is a game that Jay Kaner is going to really, you know, put his best foot forward and and say, Hey, not only am I a potential Heisman candidate, but I want to, I want to start getting some serious consideration from the NFL. Um, so I think this is a game that he's going to really try to make his mark. I'm picking Fresno state. Well, Mark, as we wrap this thing up, any final comments or questions or, or thoughts about uh, college football, the PAC 12, or uh, anything happening in the world of sports, Warren. It's 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 great to have college football back. Um, I I have to acknowledge that the way the season started has been a little bit destabilizing for me uh, as an Oregon fan. But I I relish the idea that even if Oregon season just you know um, goes in a direction that I don't want it to go, that it seems like I'm going to have a Seattle Mariners playoff team to, to get behind at least for September and October. So uh, I'm, I'm already just kind of thankful that that plan B is, is sitting right there. I love it. I love it. So what is your, what is your short, um, short, you know, name for Julio Rodriguez? Is it, is it Julio or J-Rod? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really like J-Rod just because it makes me think of A-Rod and it doesn't seem as um, as unique. Yeah. So I guess, I guess yeah, just go by Julio. Like, you know, the yeah. great stars, you know, the Kobe's and the LeBron's and the, you know, uh, the Ichiro's, they just go by one name. So, like, just go by Julio and own that. You know, what other Julio is there that's going to um, compete with Julio Rodriguez for that name? I love it. I love it. Well, we will definitely talk some Mariners in the upcoming weeks, but uh, boy, it's a great time to be a Husky. And um, you know what? We'll look forward to hopefully talking about both of our teams winning this upcoming uh, week and Seattle Seahawks playing Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos on Monday night going to be a great time if you're a seattle area sports fan stay tuned to the dog and duck show and uh for all my dog fans out there go dogs and for all my duck fans go ducks catch you next time